Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter and uh, a proud part of the Talk North Podcast Network and the brains behind Talk North and my right-hand man. Brandon, how you doing? I am doing very well, Tony. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Good. Pretty, pretty good. You know, it's... uh. It's hunting season, man, and and uh, I've been getting out a ton and shooting things and eating them. So it's been it's either most days I'm either hunting or I am in the kitchen prepping things. So for instance, came home last weekend from South Dakota with between my son and me, we came home with fourteen pheasants. And uh, let's see. So here's kind of how it goes. Get I get home Monday night, hang the pheasants in the garage. Half of them were frozen solid from being in the back of my truck over the course of the weekend. So thawed them out, uh, got up Tuesday morning, cleaned them, which as I've told you before, Tuesday is garbage collection day. So there's always like a deadline <laughs> to get to get all although you know what uh now i can put all the pheasant uh guts and feathers and everything in the uh in the organics composting i was gonna ask so that actually does work you can you can put that in the organics and it's totally fine isn't that cool so yeah exactly 14 you know deer not deer um uh pheasant carcasses were went in the went in the compost which was cool so then I, let's see, that was Tuesday morning. Then I brought all those pheasants indoors and I butchered all the meat. And I put all of the carcasses, all the, the bones in the oven for about an hour at 300 just to roast them up a little bit. And then I put them in a huge pot with some vegetables, bay leaves, salt, and pepper, and boiled them for about four hours to make stock. And I came out of there with, a, a, you know, I think maybe about three gallons of pheasant stock, some of which I've already used. And then the next day, having uh, butchered up those pheasants and measure, you know, weighing them all, then I knew how much pork fat to cut into it. And then I did um, ground them up, mixed in a bunch of spices, refroze them, ground them again. Mixed in some more spices and some brandy, and then piped them all into sausages. Came out with sixty-two pheasant sausages, some of which I'm going to give you, my friend. Right, all right. Yeah, they're so good. They're like a, my kids' favorite. These these pheasant sausages, and then uh, vac sealed them and got them in the freezer. So four days of hunting in South Dakota, and probably two days of processing pheasants after I got back to. Uh, come out with you know another bunch of pheasant sausages in the freezer which will take us well into the summer i'm sure that's awesome that's that, i mean that's really cool so it has been a pretty great hunting season for you then yeah i we found a ton of pheasants in south dakota which has been really fun i went out public hunting uh public land minnesota hunting to a place that was sent to me on Onyx Maps hunt on the Hunt app by our mutual friend Travis Frank, host of the Flush Podcast on the Talk North Network. And you were supposed to come with us, dude. Yes. But you bailed out. I <laughs> so we did. went and uh, I we, we flushed three hens. We flushed one rooster. I shot and missed, and I had to have burned... 800 calories or a thousand calories. Was, <laughs> well, we, well, hey, man, if I'm the brains behind the operation, someone's got to sit back here and make sure things are running smoothly. Sitting on your brains, I think. <laughs> oh, hell. Uh, yeah, no, I uh, I felt really bad that I couldn't go. I had to cancel. I actually had to reschedule and then cancel, which makes it even worse. <laughs> but all right. I'm glad you got to get out in the field and burn all them calories. I could have used that myself in preparation yeah. for this holiday eating that's going to come up. But hey, yeah. uh, we'll get out there soon yeah yeah so what are you gonna do here uh 
over the holidays. You gonna head home, or you guys stick around the Twin Cities, or what? Uh, we're we're gonna stick around. Um, you know, I've mentioned before my my girlfriend. We live together, and she's a she's a nurse. So we we take mm-hmm. all the safety precautions we possibly can to protect yeah. our family, to protect her, to protect her patients, to do that whole bit. So it's it's gonna be just me and her this year. It's gonna be kind of different. It's gonna be the first mm-hmm. holiday without seeing family and all that stuff. I mean, we'll 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 connect via video. But yeah, we're just gonna stay here. Uh, there's a couple local restaurants that are doing like pre-made meal things where you can get kind of a big feast they do all the work i just have to pop it in the oven and reheat it i think we're gonna go that route kind of you know kind of like what we did for thanksgiving this year is gonna be it's gonna be a wash for for most things yeah we're just taking it as it goes yeah we're my my son aiden and i were in south dakota like i said which is a real hot spot and it's been interesting um and challenging to hunt this year in south dakota because we've avoided going inside we don't even go in the break the, for the free breakfast at the hotel we we stay just in our room and we haven't gone in a single restaurant um we've been you know cooking uh one time one of my buddies brought a a grill that we sat on the back of my pickup and we grilled out in the hotel parking lot. Another time uh, we had a crock pot and, you know, just put like a, a, some pork in there and let it cook all day. And then we had shredded pork, you know, sandwiches for dinner that night, ordering pizza, stuff like that. Yeah. And then we got back and we waited five days and then took COVID tests, which um, we took yesterday. So we'll, hopefully get negative results and then can have, you know, Christmas with my mom who's 76. Um, but yeah, we're, we're trying to take a lot of the same precautions, much smaller gathering this year. Well, How would you like to have some uh, pheasant sausage for Christmas or Christmas Eve? Oh, what do you think? I, I'm in. We're, uh, we're <laughs> in. I had, a, I had a little sampling of pheasant sausage uh, the one time I went up, uh, up north with you on the way yeah. home and it took everything in me to actually save a piece <laughs> for my girlfriend <laughs> by the time I got back. It was awesome. All right. It was really All right. I'll, I'll, I'll dish you up with some. Well, the guest this week is, is someone I've had so much respect for, for such a long time. It's Dennis Anderson. He is the outdoors columnist at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which is our flagship newspaper in in the state of Minnesota. You know, um, people, I think probably most listeners understand the difference between a reporter and a columnist. Um, Dennis is a columnist. In in other words, he does a lot of reporting, but he also has a chance to opine on the news as a columnist. Um, even just today, he has a pretty, what I think is really a good hard-hitting and, and revealing interview with the um, head of the commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, Sarah Stroman. And Dennis has for a long time been very outspoken in his frustrations with the politics in Minnesota and the lack of safeguards around habitat for wild game. Uh, he also is just a great writer. He's had a ton of incredible adventures, some of which he talks about in our conversation. Um, so Dennis is, is uh, I'm just so glad. You know, what's funny, Brandon, is you and I recorded this a long time ago. It was among my first interviews and it was pre-COVID. Um, and we've, you know, waited to release it till just the right time. And I think it's perfect time now for a you know, a little Christmas gift for everybody. And I, I seem to recall, though it was a while ago, you and Dennis having some like uh, small town connections. And even the title of this episode is called I'll Have the Beef Commercial, which I think you you and he shared some similarities on. Yeah, we definitely did. I grew up in a, a smaller town surrounded by even smaller towns. And the beef commercial was something that you would see outside of little cafes or restaurants as their daily special all the time. So it's, it's also known as a loose meat sandwich. Yeah. Also known as uh, what my father would call it blank on a shingle. Shit uh, on a shingle. Was it, <laughs> was it cause it's served open face, right? With gravy usually. Exactly. So you got basically like a piece of bread with chopped beef on it and gravy on mm-hmm. top of that for the most part. Oh dude. That's, sounds pretty good actually. Yeah. Served with a side <laughs> of mashed potatoes and you're in heaven. I <laughs> uh, love it. Love it. On white bread. No, no. wheat bread, I'm guessing. I mean, every, every time I've seen it, it's been white bread, that seems to be the one that goes with the meats <laughs> the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, buddy, this has been such a fun year. I'm I'm so glad we've gotten to work together. 
I hope we get to do it for a long, long time into the future. I wish you and your girlfriend a safe and happy Christmas. And I'll uh, I'll be dropping some sausage off at your house so you can imbibe on that. Well, thank you. And 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 same 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 to you. I wish you and your happy just a very safe, healthy, and fun and uh you know somewhat good times as much as you can make them a yeah. holiday as well. And uh, if you are going anywhere, travel safely because you know. That's when everybody's yeah. out on the road. And that goes to everybody listening. Just travel safely. If you're going to be around relatives, take the precautions like Tony. Get the test. <laughs> take care of like yourselves. That. Yeah. So yeah. we can all have a good yeah. time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Really appreciate your support. And we look forward to lots more great conversations in 2021 just like this conversation that I have with Star Tribune Outdoors columnist, Dennis Anderson. Dennis, thanks for joining me here on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Um, you've, uh, you and I have talked before, so it's good to get together. Yeah, your dad was a reverend. No, my grandfather. Your grandfather. No, my father was in the grocery business. Which isn't. So he didn't follow his father into the ministry. No, huh? that was on my mom's side, actually. So my grand, my father, was actually the son of uh, farming people in North Dakota. Okay. Yeah, my mother was the daughter of a Methodist minister. I see. Yeah. And back in that day, girls didn't go into the seminary. No, but she did actually. This is uh, she graduated from Frazee High School. You know where Frazee, yeah, Minnesota, vaguely. is near, near Detroit Lakes. And, um, no, let me take that back. She didn't graduate from there, but my grandparents lived in Frazee where he was a pastor at three different churches actually back in the day, Purim, Burgess, and Frazee. When my mother finished high school, she went to Methodist University in, uh, Washington, D.C., American. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. Now, was he, was he, um, was your grandfather the the pastor of all three of those churches at the same time. Well, yes, he, one, he was the preacher of them. So I assume so he, he was those the pastor. Are, these were called like yoked parishes. So he would preach at three churches every Sunday. Well, to fill that in a little bit, um, and perhaps more than you might want. But uh, when my brother and I were little, we would spend some weeks in the summer. We were lived in Michigan at the time. But we would spend some weeks with my grandparents. And so on Saturday, my grandfather would... Uh, practice his sermon first in his what he I guess what he would call a study, which was just a room in their small house, and then um, I would hear him doing it out loud. Okay. And then Sunday morning, my brother and I had to put on our little suits with our little ties, usually bow ties, get in uh, his and my grandmother's '53 uh, Chevy, three-speed on the column, and we would uh, go to all three churches and hear the sermon three times. At the end of which, what usually was a chicken dinner. At in, one of the, yeah. I think in Purim mostly. Okay. Sometimes we that was back. the third. I kind of wrote about that recently um, in a way, and I got some correspondence from some people in Frazee and found out that my grandmother, which was no surprise in retrospect, was actually the head of the local temperance union. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty. Is that right? Yeah. So the split in the Methodist Church today that you've heard about. Yeah, it's coming up um, in Minneapolis this summer. It's going to get a lot of coverage, the big yeah, split. I would say that at least at that time, we would have been in the conservative wing <laughs> because when TV yeah. was TV was in its infancy, um, but when a cigarette or and they did have cigarette commercials then or a beer commercial came on or liquor, we had to turn the TV off. <laughs> so And then you just sit there and it dark room until yeah. the commercial would right. be over and then they turn back Right. On. So now if you had the urge to say light up a cigarette, I would have the urge to turn a TV off, which is <laughs> odd, but but true. But I oh never did gosh, smoke and they funny. were... Uh, and they were teetotalers till they died? I assume they were. Yeah. I mean, I never saw anything yeah. resembling alcohol in their home. So Now the Methodists... Let's see. In that, I wonder when the United Methodist denomination formed, probably in the late 50s. Yeah. So there would have been a two, few different versions of Methodism um, right before the United Methodist. They were from Methodist. Ohio originally, and all that side of my mom's family was from Ohio. And his, actually his name, he, has, um, he must have been sort of 
a foregone conclusion that he would be a minister because in that faith, because his actual name was John Wesley Frisbee. <laughs> oh my gosh. And John Wesley, of course, is a founder of Methodism. Yeah, right. Well, that's, yeah, the, yeah. It, we knew what his parents wanted him and to be. And his brother was also a Charles Methodist. Wesley, that's, well, that's the brother brought, who wrote the hymns. And, and I don't know about that, but his brother was a minister as well. So, yeah, but it was great. Um, that whole area of Detroit Lakes, Frazee, well, Frazee's, you know, relatively small, but DL, that whole area yeah. is a great part and area of Minnesota there. Not only, um, you know, there's a lot of wildlife, deer in particular, but um, there are a lot of little lakes that were at that time just tremendous, you know, pan fishing lakes. Yeah. And like a lot of families, we didn't, we did have a boat later, an aluminum, like 14 foot boat, um, but my dad, had a, an outboard motor, and that's what we carried with us, a five-and-a-half horsepower Johnson in the trunk. And what you did at the time, what was typical, is you would go to a resort and you'd rent the boat. Okay, but and, you brought but your, you own motor. your motor. Yeah, because the motors were not as easily, I don't think, uh, um, accessed or not as easily available. Really? Yeah, so B- you had B-Y-O-M, that. Yeah. bring your own motor. And you can, in fact... Um, the Lindner boys up in Ron and Al, when they got started in the 60s, when Al came back from Vietnam and <clears throat> they ended up in Brainerd, they oftentimes uh, just had the motor when they started. Really? And they would meet the clients uh, at Kep's Niswa Bait, which is no longer in existence. Marv Kep is still guiding. Okay. But... Um, and they would meet the clients that have the motor, head to a lake, rent the boat. Take them out. Yeah. Yeah, so... Things have changed, obviously. Things. Wow, have they ever? Yeah, more equipment, uh, more expense, and yeah, yeah. So you and your brother would be up there in the summer, and you'd fish. Yeah, we'd fish uh, when my dad. My, part of the state? We were, you know, when we were there. Oftentimes, my dad <clears throat> was still in Michigan working. Sure. My mom may or may not have been there. We were kind of just visiting. Yeah. But when he was around, um, we would definitely. Uh, take off, especially if my mother uh, or my aunts were there who were, they were all from Ohio and he, he was from Fargo and he, uh, I'm not quite sure how they got married, but he, really? <laughs> he, he was a little more, um, he was a, motor- a little rougher. Well, well, not so rough, but he was, a, he was a motorcycle guy, oh. and a car guy. Okay. And, um, yeah, so he came from a different, uh, and I and I would guess, you know, DLs is great. Detroit Lakes is in the summer a spot, a summer sort of hot yeah, spot. Yeah. And Fargo, if you've been to Fargo in the summer, um, one of the things you would probably want to do is go to Detroit Lakes. It's not that far away. Sure. The lakes there, the pavilions, dancing. I would assume maybe they met there. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm not sure of that. But my dad was. He uh, and a buddy of his, Carl Shunky, who I would go to I would come to meet later in life. Um, uh, he was one of the. In fact, I thought it, it was unheard of at the time, but my dad was born in 22, 22 might have been nineteen twenty-two, might have been twenty-four. I have to go back and think about that. But and Carl Shunky the same. But when I got to meet this fellow, Carl Shunky, as I got older. He was living with a woman he never married. Oh, boy. And he never married her until um, he was literally on his deathbed. Really? And he married her really? because so she could do it. So that was my first experience. But Carl and my dad were um, motorcycle racers, uphill motorcycle or mountain or climbing motorcycle racers. And they'd go to Montana and everything. And that was their thing. No kidding. Yeah. So we have some old videos about that. So they're different, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> and to the so dick. he maybe didn't always see eye to eye with the in-laws. Is he what tries you're to, well, my dad smoked. Oh boy! Uh, wow, um, your mom really went no. off the farm. Then it sounds like it would seem. So, yeah. <laughs> did she drag him to church then? When you in oh he in went your willingly. Michigan youth, he oh, would yeah. go. Yeah, oh yeah, he went okay. willingly. Okay, oh yeah, okay. he'd show. And uh, now he was a good dad. Took. Uh, Took us fishing and hunting, and uh, you know we didn't have a lot of money or anything, but we were in the middle of the pack probably, mm-hmm. and um, you know so got to enjoy all that stuff. And did that in Michigan, Upper Michigan, deer hunting, yeah. Upper Peninsula. What else do you do? I mean, there's a lot of snow. A lot of deer hunting up there, huh? Yeah, there was deer hunting, um, some grouse hunting, mm-hmm. uh, fishing, 
we uh, were in a town, a small town called Gladstone, which is if most people, when they say, well, where in the UP are you from? And I would say, do you know where Escanaba is? And if they said no to that, they would not know where Gladstone <laughs> is because Escanaba is one of the bigger cities and okay. our towns. But it was right on Lake Michigan, and yeah, it was great. He, uh Fished in Lake Michigan and also in the lakes and uh, hunted deer and got out and, you know, had a good small town life. Yeah. Now, um, the outdoors, when did you make this decision that the outdoors was going to be your career, your vocation as an Yeah, adult? you know, I really didn't in terms of the writing. Um, it kind of made its decision for me in a lot okay. of ways. Um, I was an English major in college. I always did write. I always wanted to write. I thought I would write fiction. Um, a lot of things conspired that would uh, lead me to be a fiction writer in that I didn't have any money. That's typical. <laughs> um, I graduated. Uh, I went to school out in Morris. Okay. University of Minnesota Morris. So I knew that western part of the state and the countryside. Um Graduated kind of early and uh, had school debts. Okay. Didn't want a real job, but, um, you know, that's, I say that now, but in retrospect, I might be um, masking the fact that no one wanted to offer me a real job either. (laughs) Uh huh. I did interview for a job with a suburban newspaper, and I I still remember that uh, I interviewed with a guy and so I said, what is his pay? You know, because by the time he got done describing how much work I'd be doing, you know, you'd yeah. be going to this kind of, I said, well, what is his pay? And he said, 104 a week. I said, That's, and my response was, and I couldn't come up with a response. And I looked at him and I said, U.S. dollars? You're talking about $104? <laughs> I'm going to do all this for $104? And he said, yeah. And I said, nah, nah, count me out. Really? And so... Uh, I needed a, I had gone for most of what would have been my senior year in college. I went to South America. Um, I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to see that country. I actually, I didn't study Latin studies, but my, our neighbor in Morris where a bunch of us lived, taught that was a professor of that. And he was a cool guy. He said, you got to go down there. You know, it's, it's uh, really neat. And I said, where? He said, well, Mexico and then keep going. Mm. So I did. Um, uh, I caught caught a ride to uh, Laredo, Texas, crossed the border, picked up a bus uh, there to Mexico City. Wasn't really sure where I'd go. I got off the bus wow. in Mexico City. I looked around and I said, I got to get out of here. <laughs> this, it was huge. I mean, even then it was massive. Well, I'm guessing the bus station in Mexico City, too, might not be the most savory the, Well, I, I can't recall and, that. But yeah. I do recall this. That what seemed to be endless miles of literally cardboard tin yeah. shanties and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So I caught a bus to the Caribbean and um, ah, blanking out the big town there, got off the bus there and kind of hung around, I'll think of it, and then hung around and I met this guy who was from Indiana, hmm. a Vietnam vet. Okay. And uh, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> and he said, I'm going gold mining. And I said, where are you going gold mining? And he said, Bolivia. <laughs> um, and so I said, well, that's interesting. And, said, and he had this Jeep, a real nice Jeep. Okay. And I didn't have anything. I just had a backpack. And I said, well, where are you staying? He said, I'm staying about 10 miles down the coast um, on an island. And my Spanish isn't very good, but it's called Isla del Amor, Island of Love, right? <laughs> so I said, all right. You know, He said, come on down there, camp down there. So I went down there. And it was idyllic. I mean, it was perfect. The ocean on one side, um, basically inland water uh, on on the other side of the island. A couple of American women um, were uh, camping there as well. And uh, um, so we camped there, and and, uh, I stayed there for a while. He took off, and I don't know where he ended up, headed south. Eventually, I... Um, took off as well, made my way through Central America down to Panama and was um, trying to catch a boat. That was my kind of cheap, I didn't have much money, mm-hmm. to uh, Ecuador. I knew somebody, the guy at Morris who was our uh, field goal kicker. Okay. He's from Ecuador. 
Back in the day, uh, I remember that in football, they would you'd have these guys. Yeah. It'd be a whole white team, and then. Yeah, and I knew him pretty well because Some, yeah. uh, he and I, for whatever reason, we uh, assigned ourselves late to Morris, and so the school didn't have any more room in the dormitory, so they rented this old dump hotel right downtown, the Merchant's <laughs> Hotel, Gosh. and uh, he and I shared a common bathroom in that dump hotel, so Eduardo <laughs> Salcido. So I knew if I could get to Ecuador, I yeah, you'd have to find somebody. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I couldn't catch a boat. Uh, Panama, I thought, was a very dangerous place. At least where I uh, experienced it in Panama City. Okay. Um, big black market at that time probably still is for American dollars, and that's was my plan. I'd been told this, you know, there and elsewhere. If you can trade for the local currency mm. and the black market, you get a lot more local currency. Okay. And so. I tinkered around with that, and I said, finally, you know, I'm out of here. And uh, I caught a plane, actually, to uh, Ecuador, Guayaquil, and and I made my way down through Peru Mm -hmm. into Bolivia. And then uh, spring came, summer came, and I was out of there and came back home. Yeah, So when I came back home, I had these school debts. I interviewed for that job, and uh, lo and behold, uh, I didn't get that, so I figured, I don't know. So I went through the yellow pages mm-hmm. and I said, who hires in the summer? And I said, moving companies do. So I called this moving company out in New Brighton and said, yeah, we have a, we have some openings. Can you come out and uh, we'll interview you? And I said, yeah, I can come out there. And then the second question was, could you leave for San Francisco tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I said, we haven't even interviewed yet. He said, I know, but we have some openings. <laughs> And so I went out there. How long can the interview be for a guy who's moving boxes anyway? <laughs> yeah, I was a helper slash trainee. Uh-huh. Um, so I went out there and uh, did the interview. He gave me a couple of shirts. with One had the name Bob on it, and the other had the name Stan on it. So uh, I okay. had a uniform, and I got in. Uh, Those are the openings, I guess, yeah. Bob and Stan's jobs. You know. Right. So I got in the truck with a guy named Rich Grancy who um, I later uh, found out, it took a, a little while, was a madman. Oh. It seemed like, anyway, to me. And we okay. went to San Francisco, unloaded, loaded for New England and New Hampshire, emptied out. And, um, yeah, so wow. that led to uh, a two-year stint as a over-the-road truck driver. Okay. Yeah, a little better than that. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Um, Eventually, I went back to grad school and in journalism. This time, figured I needed a job. That fiction thing wasn't working out so well. <laughs> I couldn't go. What any was l- the genre of the fiction you were trying to write at the time? Oh, yeah, um, I'm not so sure it was a, a genre. I mean, it would have been literary fiction, like contemporary literary fiction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm not. I never. I'm not a plot guy where you sit around in a room by yourself and say, "Okay, I got to have this guy kill this guy." Yeah. And, you know, and that that's not okay. something I could concoct yeah. with without you know basically disbelieving myself <laughs> while doing it. So right, right. Yeah. So I went back to grad school, got a master's, and then uh, moved to Ely. Oh, and yeah. And ran a okay. weekly newspaper up there, mm-hmm. uh, the Ely Miner, which was um, in uh, a death a fight, a fight to the death with the Ely Echo, which uh, had only recently come to town. Okay. Yeah. I mean, hard to believe now. You think in our lifetime, uh, there was a small town that had two newspapers and a separately owned shopper, Man. and a separately owned radio station in a town of thirty two hundred. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, it was fun though. I mean, it was grim in terms of uh, the only reason. Well, Doug Smith, the former my former colleague mm-hmm. at the Star yeah. Tribune, retired now. He was at the Ely Echo. Okay. As a straight you know news reporter, I guess yeah. to the degree yeah. that there were any, and he was on the same. Well, Sam Cook was there too. Oh my the goodness. recently retired yeah. guy in uh, Duluth, the outdoor yeah. writer. Yeah, and I, as far as I know, I know Doug and I both were on this federal government program called CETA, uh, Concentrated Employment Training Act, which in which uh, if you were in a relatively depressed area, which Ely was, yeah, and you were an employer, you they'd pay you. Uh, so we got 200 a week, and the federal government basically paid, you know, for you guys to work for, at for these us newspapers. to work there. Yeah, 
One of the, you know, a, a patron saint for anybody in this state or probably anybody around the country in the English-speaking world, for somebody who connected spirituality the, to the outdoors was Sigurd Olsen. Mm-hmm. And you must have had interactions with him. Oh, very much While so. While you were yeah. up there, what yeah. what are your he befriended me of him? because he befriended me in a way. I guess that's what you'd say. He made the effort to meet me because I made the then um, naive assumption because, of course, I had read all his books. Yeah, and um, we were trying to build circulation, and so among the things I did was. Um, was reprint a story of his called Spring, which I think is in Wilderness Days, his book. And so when I reprinted that, I thought everybody would kind of rejoice in this among our subscribers. And I just took a lot of heat from not everybody, but certainly enough people, including uh, um, a woman, I won't name her, but the ex-wife of a guy who became my friend up there too. She came in and I thought she was going to slug me. What she? What did she not well, like? Well, the point is, I mean, if you have to read Ely's history, but um, yeah. Sig was... He was a controversial figure up in there. In town. Yeah. Yeah, in yeah. town. They burned him in effigy at one point. In 1970, that was the year I was up there in 1978 uh-huh. at the congressional hearing for the expansion of the Boundary Waters. Um, so, you know, but he then made the effort and, um, and to kind of reach out to oh, me. That's nice. And then subsequently we became, um, I would say, friends and certainly were friendly. I'd go up there and Elizabeth was just a wonderful woman, his wife, yeah. and she made cookies all the time and coffee and he'd sit up there and and he was um you know there are a few people i've met who in fact are bigger than life as, yeah. you know to use a sort of a trite expression or bigger than the rest of us that that have a lot of charisma he had the shock of of white hair you know he had the pipe he had a deep voice. Um, he was, you know, handsome for an older man. He was uh, educated in addition to being smart. He had this great background and wealth of, um, you know, book smarts. Mm-hmm. But he also, oh, well, he had studied under Leopold in Wisconsin, but he also had this wealth of experience, yeah. you know, traveled widely and knew things. But in his life, when he first came up there, I think in 1925, in his life, like all of us, he evolved. And so when he went up there, he taught at the junior college, but he also guided in the summer. And in the course of guiding over time, he did what other people who guided up there, he would take a towboat up the Moose Lake chain to Prairie Portage to get things going, you know, and a towboat's got motors and stuff. And so when, and I'm oversimplifying and kind of condensing here, but so when you talk about him being hung in effigy and so forth, it was at that time that, um, the Ely people who were his contemporaries said, hey, say, wait, what They're about... They're calling him a hypocrite. Yeah, Because yeah, exactly. you used to use a motor up in those lakes, and now you're telling us we can't use can't motors use, up in Exactly. So that, you know, when you yeah. knew that history, gotcha. um, the people in Ely who did that, the Kynes brothers and that, the loggers, you know, they were also good people. Yeah, You know, and sure. I still have good friends up there. And, you know, and, and a lot of them are uh, conflicted about, you know... They want this, the reason they live there, at least my contemporaries, the reason they move there, because it's beautiful. Yeah. Because you can go down the Fernberg Road and and feel good in the summer or the winter. You can paddle out, you know, if only for a day out on mm-hmm. Snowbank or out into Disappointment or any of those lakes, catch some fish, you know, and that's why they live there. Yeah. But at the same point, they're trying to make a living and their living is going to be paying less than the one average down here in the Twin Cities. And the Twin Cities people, you know, generally speaking, including myself, we um, in some ways live vicariously through yeah. that and want it conserved and preserved and so forth. So it, it's uh, for a lot of people who live on both sides of that fence, it's, it's not so easy to just declare, yeah, I want it green forever, I want it yeah. mined, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um. Using Sigurd Olson as kind of a jumping off point, you know, one of the things that he did in his writing was he was at, in some in some of his essays, some of his books, that, mm-hmm. um, unabashedly spiritual in the mm-hmm. way he talked about the outdoors. And your, you know, your writing 
I think, uh, which I admire so much, you cover a whole lot in in your columns, you know, and I think people think about you a lot as a very political, you're very engaged in the politics of the outdoors in Minnesota and are one of the strongest voices on that. But you also, I don't know that you do it overtly in the, in the paper, but it seems like your spirit is also involved in your outdoors pursuits. Mm -hmm. So you, I mean, you've, you've had this career in the outdoors. How, how has that affected you? Whether it's your, that, that traditional Methodist faith you were brought up in, or just as your own kind of, uh, spiritual understanding has evolved. Mm -hmm. How how has the outdoors been a part of that for you? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, I think, um, I don't know, it, it's an obvious point and everybody might have known it all along and maybe I knew it before, but where I know that it was made clear to me that politics and the management or um, conservation of the outdoors and so forth are all mixed together was when in uh, the early 1982 in that area when we started to uh, form Pheasants Forever and uh, the then DNR Wildlife Section Chief Roger Holmes, you know, one of his first ideas, because what the first thing we want to do in these little baby steps was to have a state pheasant stamp that was required and that we'd take those funds and this is all, you know, pie in the sky stuff at the time and we would go make habitat and things would get better, right? And Roger said, yeah, that's all well and good, but we should take a piece of that money and I will get a hold of my my contemporaries, my colleagues in other Midwest states and so forth, and they'll get some state money and we'll put it all together and we'll send it to Washington, D.C., to the Wildlife Management Institute, and they will advocate for policy change because I remember Mm. Roger saying they, in Washington, they can do with a sweep of a pen what the rest of us can't do in 20 years, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that... Uh, you know, things happened, but that resulted relatively quickly thereafter in the forming of the Conservation Reserve Program. So when you talk about the mixing of politics and and, and uh, nature and the conservation, especially in contemporary society, it became obvious, certainly at that time, and maybe it was obvious before then, and mm. maybe it's obvious to everybody. It just needed to be made obvious to me, yeah. but it's true, and you can't ignore that. Um, or you ignore it now, um, you know, at your peril. Yeah. So yeah. you try to, in my role as a like, columnist, I try to make sure that people are uh, at least aware who want to be aware, who are aware, and to the degree that um, they should be motivated, given the option to be motivated mm-hmm. to say, hey, this is your water. You want to clean or you don't want to clean? You yeah. want wildlife or not? As for the other part of it, which you talk about the SIG part, and he was very overtly political as well. Yeah, and he was, yeah, and I always feel like when I'm reading his writing that part of the reason he writes, like in the Singing Wilderness, unabashedly, we need to protect this place because it's a spiritual place. Mm -hmm. And if we lose this place, we'll be cutting ourselves off from a certain aspect of human spirituality. Right, exactly. Yeah. And he is right. Yeah. Um, and and but then you think, okay, if that's true, and you travel widely, he traveled widely. I don't know uh, internationally, but I've not been to Tokyo. But I've been elsewhere in the world where the so now we have everybody living straight up in buildings. Yeah. Nature is at a premium. Although I'm not saying the Japanese don't appreciate nature because that's a big part of their deal too. But um, so okay. New York City are all those people um, missing something that we're not missing because we're closer to it. You can argue, yeah, you know, actually. Um, But then, you know, you take the next question, are we, all of us, evolving as we become more people, more populated uh, in more urban areas, including in the Minnesota? Mm -hmm. Uh, Minnesota is unique, in fact, where it has the largest percentage of its entire population in a single metropolitan area of any state. Hmm. If you think about that, it makes sense. You yeah, know, Duluth's right. kind of big and St. Cloud's kind of big and kind of connected and Rochester's kind of big. But we don't really have a big second it. city yeah. other than the Twin Cities. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Even Wisconsin has, you know, Milwaukee, Green Bay and Madison. Yeah. Madison. Right, so, right. Um, 
you know, so that, what does that mean? What do you think? What's the answer to that question? I mean, I'm not saying it's not something you could probably write in the paper because the backlash would be intense, but do you think that by the, the urbanization of our culture that we're cutting ourselves off from something that will ultimately, you know, weaken us as a species? I'm not sure how it would weaken us. It could, but it'll make us different. Now, mm-hmm. you were at the DNR Roundtable yeah. the other day, mm-hmm. last Friday, yep. um, recently, and the doctor from, the physician from Mayo spoke, and, and I didn't quite, and I haven't looked into it yet, I didn't quite grasp the breadth of what they're doing down there, but the nutshell is that um, nature is good for you. Yeah, that's the bottom line. Like they're going to give prescriptions out to people. Yeah. Oh, you're having high blood pressure? Mm -hmm. Go take a walk in the woods. Mm -hmm. That's And you know it to be true. Of course it's true. Yeah. It's like like the the gist of this entire podcast Mm -hmm. is connecting the outdoors to spirituality, which I personally think Sigurd did it. John Muir did it. Not... I'll, there's not a ton of talk in the outdoors community about the spiritual aspects. And I'm talking like non-sectarian, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not yeah. advocating for a particular religious perspective, but there's a, that there's something transcendent in mm-hmm. in these outdoor pursuits. Mm-hmm. Well, but it's also true that uh, you have children. I do. How many? Three. They're not all the same, right? Correct. As a given. And... Uh, Bud Grant told me that once, and we were talking kind of about this a long time ago on a trip, and he said, I've got six kids, and uh, none of them are the same. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not even all of them want to be out in the hunting and fishing. I took right. them all hunting and fishing, but, you know, and I remember when I, I was at the Pioneer Press, after Ely, I came down to the Pioneer Press to dispatch in 1978, and then I was there until 93, and they came over to the Star Tribune, and the editor at that time, Tim McGuire, who's still alive, great guy, great editor, I thought, um, interesting guy. Um, he and I had lunch a couple times when he's saying, yeah, you should come over there. And at the time, Ron was uh, starting his move Ron to Shera. be, Ron yeah. Shera, to be a, a TV guy, you know, mm-hmm. so they figure, well, okay, they could get caught without anybody here. So um, he's telling me what a great, you know, we can beef up the outdoors, right, outdoor section, and we do all this and all that. And then, so I said, finally, okay, I'll come over there. So about either the first or second day I'm over there, he walks over to my desk and said, come in my office. And so we're talking, and he says, yeah, I says, uh, I got to tell you, he says, I don't like anything about the outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> this is the editor who just hired you. Yeah, and I said, what do you mean? You could have told me that two days yeah. ago. <laughs> they said, not that he's not the part in the paper. He said, I understand the importance of that. But uh-huh. personally, yeah. he said, I don't feed birds. I don't hike. I don't do anything. Yeah. None of it. It's all foreign to me. Yeah. And he's not alone, as you he's know. He's not alone. I know. Yeah. I think that's an increasing number of people. And I don't remember growing up and hearing people complain about mosquitoes or, you know, whatever. People just, it was like, you live in Minnesota, there's some mosquitoes. Right. But now, I don't know, you just, you go to the Boundary Waters, oh my God, the mosquitoes. Yeah. You know, you hear that. Yeah. You're like, yeah, right. and I don't bring bug spray when I go up there because it's just like you, it's part of dealing with the elements, I guess, for me. It's, yeah. it's a big part of going out, you know. So, um, you know, but things have changed and you can look at it um, and talk about the role nature plays yeah. in us as a people and then individually, but... You know, look at a different aspect of the same question, which is this craziness uh, that our society has for sports, um, professional sports or college sports or high school sports or whatever. It's like a mass distraction. Yeah. I like, I played high school sports and a little bit in college, and I'm interested in that. But, um, you know, it's not, not a, uh, a drug for me that I have to, because it, it, placing what I would think would be more interesting ways to spend your time, you know, including, <laughs> be honest with you, including the people who actually play the damn sports. Yeah. That's the way they feel. Oh, you know? I know. It's a job, right? You know? Yeah. They're, they're, I'm here now. Bud Grant's uh, ideal for that. I mean, he's like, yeah. the first when the, the first time he was without a f- job in the fall, whatever that was, 83, 84, when they went on strike, the NFL, 
So I had met him through another guy, and we had been friends and doing some stuff. So he calls me up and says, let's go to North Dakota. So I said, yeah, okay, let's go to North Dakota. So we go out there, we get our dogs, and we're going to go bird hunting. And uh, it, it was like uh, where we, wherever we would go, we stayed with a rancher friend of his out there. But where he had stopped, they'd recognize him or something like that. And he'd say, then people would say stuff like, who do you think is going to win? You know, who do you think is going to win that game? And he'd say, I don't know. That's why they play the game. You know, I don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Not only that, I'm not thinking about it. Right. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about this other part of my life, which, right. which at least to him and to many people like him is really important. Having said all of that, in this state, to me, the critical thing is that we have people in leadership positions, politically and otherwise, who appreciate how big a role it can be not only in our society, but to us as a people. Yeah, I mean, this is what I was going to ask you then. It's like, why why do you fight so hard for it? Because you could... You could take your job as the outdoors columnist at the paper and just write about fun hunts and this new recipe and this interesting guy I met. Um, But you spend a lot of it fighting for trying to change people's minds. And what's, what's the end? What's the, what's the goal? Why? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of different ways of outdoor writing, of course. And, um, and it's interesting, and uh, I don't know that one is better than the other. Certainly mine is not necessarily better than any other, but it does seem to me to be obvious. Um, you know, as I said, I went to school out in Morris, and every pheasant opener thereafter, my friends and I would go back to Morris, and we that's where we would hunt on the pheasant opener. And so we knew all of those, well, most of the areas around the state areas, the federal areas, the private areas where there was habitat and where there were birds. And we could see in our own little real time, you know, I finished school out there, uh, well, the actual graduation was in 73, but in real time by 1980, we could see where we used to hunt pheasants, and it was just gone. Yeah. And it wasn't paved, but it yeah. was crop, you know, yeah. drained. And so you think, well, uh, I'm not a historian necessarily, but if I can see that in my little lifetime in this four or five year span, think of what's happening, you know, around. And and you have to be, I think, you know, not concerned about that to just go out and kind of leverage everything for your own, you know, good in a job, whether it's an outdoor writing or not, and say, well, I'm, a friend of mine said uh, years ago, he said, um, if they ever outdoor outlaw hunting, I said, it's no problem. He said, I'll just go beneath the radar and I'll just take what I got to take. <laughs> you know, there are no <laughs> rules. Then. Yeah. And, um, you know, there is that philosophy. And some, to some degree, outdoor writing in this country has that slice in it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we call colloquially, uh, in some respects, we call it mean joke fishing. And What's you, that? Me and Joe go fishing. Oh, yeah. that's you, the you right. You still have to write that column. Yeah. You know, and as Ron Shera once. <laughs> For you, it's the Grizz, right? Yeah. You and the Grizz go yeah, fishing. Me and Joe, whoever. Yeah. You know, it's, that's a genre. <laughs> yeah. Ron Shera once said to me, uh, I can't remember what we were talking about. He said, uh, some guy said to him, hey, that job doesn't win it back when he was yeah. writing. Yeah. Said, that job doesn't look so hard. And, uh, and, you know, he was fishing at the time. Yeah. And he said, well, it's not really that hard. He says, but. Give me 25 inches of copy when the fish aren't biting. He said, that's what we get paid for. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you feel, in general, having seen what you've seen over your career, hopeful or pessimistic? No, I'm always hopeful. Are you? You, you have to be. How come? Well, you have to be because the alternative isn't very, uh, you know, uh, worthwhile for yourself personally. Yeah. And uh, there are also, the other thing to keep in this mix which is a lesson I've had to remind myself of. As we get older, as I get older, um, I'm seeing things, you know, through a rearview mirror as they were, and I experienced them when I was younger. And in many respects, there were, at times, more birds, more ducks, Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. pheasants, Mm -hmm. fewer people for competing for, you know, choice spots. 
But at the same time, there are young people coming up who are seeing all this for the first time. And there may be fewer ducks, in fact, empirically, as I'm saying. Yeah. But for them, it's what they're experiencing. That's right. And it's terrific for them. You know, they And they sh- should have that perspective and be able to enjoy it and build on it as well. Um, when, be- when, I, when I was turned about 10 years ago, probably when I was about 40... I really started getting into pheasant hunting in South Dakota. Mm, good. And I love it. Love it. It's my favorite type of hunting. And I'll go out. I would go start when I started going out there, guys were like, Oh, you should have been here yeah, ten five years ago. Five years ago, <laughs> ten years ago. We would have our limit in thirty minutes and we'd be back. And I was like, in what? Back in your crappy little motel yeah. with your wet dog watching college football? Like I'm out here to hunt. Yeah. Not to yeah. not to bag a three rooster limit in thirty yeah. minutes. Yeah. You know? But that's I've never you'll never oh back in the day, you know, this always back yeah. in the day. But for me, to shoot a limit is I don't, you know, most days in South Dakota you don't shoot a limit. You you gotta work hard if you're with a group of guys, you know. Oh, don't yeah. shoot a limit. You come back with two birds apiece and you're happy. You had an awesome day with your dogs out in the field, you know. I've taken people over the years hunting who, um, there's one person, a book editor, books editor at the Piner Press, who just was an anti-hunting zealot, but a great, nice woman. But other than that, and she gave me, you know, a lot of uh, heat. And I had the nickname that was assigned to me there in the newsroom. Uh, that my mother never grew to appreciate uh, of uh, killer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know I'd come back and it'd be something dead, and and uh, so I've taken people out hunting as an example and fishing as well who've never done it, and they've never, um, never once not had a great time, because the whole hunting thing actually, especially bird hunting, is. Uh, Small towns, small town cafe, you know, I'm going to have, and a lot of people don't understand what a uh, beef commercial is. Are you familiar with the beef commercial? No, let's hear about it. Well, you have to, I mean, it's mainly Western outstate farmland, Minnesota, but you'll go into a small restaurant like in Hancock or any of those towns, Donnelly around Morris, and uh, written on the blackboard would be, the lunch would be a beef commercial. You know, what the hell? Oh, yeah. It's just basically yes. beef and mashed potatoes and gravy. On a piece of white bread, probably. Well, I don't know that the bread is <laughs> under it. You know, well, you might get the bread. Yeah. My and, dad called it on a shingle, I think, or something like that. It yeah. could be. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and they, the small town people, um, you're, you know, you're getting an entire lunch or dinner for $2.49. And, yeah, right, right, And right. Uh, you're driving around and you go walk and you feel good. You're exercising. Um, you know, it's a great time. A bird gets up, and and if it's a pheasant, you know, it's a gaudy. If it's a if it's a rooster, it's a gaudy, florid bird. Oh, it's incredible, a beautiful beyond um, you know measure. And and you have these experiences, and they pile on one another, and you easily say, I want to do that again. Yeah, you know, easily duck hunting. Yeah. Duck hunting when ducks are actually flying is one of the few times in your life when you have no. Um, other thoughts whatsoever you're totally centered on the moment because you know they're coming and so forth and I can remember once my friend uh, college buddy Willie Smith and I who's a pharmacist now in Wilmer every year we'd go to Delta Marsh up in Manitoba and hunt ducks and um, you know it was just we'd stay in this town Portage La Prairie in a in a motel room that had a little kitchen and we were always there during uh, what the World Series or what Royce calls the World Series you know and so um, we would hunt and then we would come back and we would um, go out usually for a Chinese dinner about 430 because we're tired and then uh, the World Series would come on we'd fall asleep and get up at three or four in the morning and do it again Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, you know those are just you know, w- tremendous experiences. One time Willie, who had a bad back, we get out there and he had to row. There no motors allowed, and we had a Grumman sport boat. We had two of my dogs. Um, it would have been at that time uh, Rowdy and uh, Chuck. Had two dogs and Grumman sport boat. Two dozen decoys. The two of us. So we were pretty well loaded. And the wind's blowing. It's cold. And row out there. 
and we're hunting bluebills, which is as much fun as it gets. And so I get uh, on the shore, we put the decoys out, get the dogs all set up, and birds are flying, and I can't find Willie. And uh, I said, Willie, I yelled, Willie, over the wind, you know. I said, where are you? I just heard this kind of low moaning, you know. <laughs> I went back there, and he said, my back went out on me, and he's just flat in the marsh. And he said, I got I to get out of here. So there we go, an hour. The ducks are everywhere. Oh, I mean, ducks are no. just covering us <laughs> yeah, up, right? Of course, of yeah. course. <laughs> and so there we go. I pick up all the decoys. I carry Will. I put him face down over the decoys, oh, you know, in the boat yeah. and row us back. And, you know, that was uh, not the most fun for him, certainly. But, you know, those are the types of things yeah. that you have and... I'm not putting down the fact that you can buy a ticket to a Vikings or a Twins game and have a good time. But in the process of buying that ticket, you're literally saying, here, you entertain me. That's right. You know, you know that's one of the things um, when, when I was more getting into hunting a few years ago, a conversation you and I had that helped me understand something about what was so spiritually compelling to me about hunting. Mm-hmm. And that was this, just what you've said about this. It demands absolute focus. It, it, it takes all my senses. If, if I'm walking through a field, uh, pheasant hunting, if, if, my, if I get distracted, not even look at my phone, but if I just get distracted mentally, I'm not tracking the dog, the other hunters, a bird gets up. Is it in my zo- shooting zone? Mm-hmm. Is it in, in range? Mm-hmm. You know, um, then you shoot a bird and you get so hyped up you didn't really mark where it went down and then you go and you can't find it. And that's the worst feeling of all. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't find a bird you dropped. Same, same, it's the same with duck hunting. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same with deer hunting. You're sitting in the deer stand for hour after hour after hour. And then you doze off or you look at your phone and that's, you know, you miss the deer that comes by. So it, it demands, I think it both demands and rewards this total concentration. And it, in some ways, that's what I had expected, I guess, growing up. That's what I had expected religion to give to me, but never really gave it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, hunting is given. But like religion and uh, I would think and, and um, other sort of knowledge areas that you have, you know, significant knowledge areas that you have, um, you can go talk and meet someone you don't know at all who's been to North Dakota pheasant or duck hunting or South Dakota and suddenly you can have a, you can have as long a conversation with them as you want you know Absolutely. it's very common um, in terms of that understanding and uh, yeah I just can't think of another deer hunting too I mean deer hunting is different in a lot of ways it's different yeah it's stationary and you got a big game animal the animal unlike pheasants pheasants trying to get away from you so you don't have to deal with that uh, question of uh, boy, this is premeditated. He's coming toward me, and I'm going to have to shoot him. And it doesn't know I'm here. It doesn't know I'm here. I'm going to shoot him. You know, yeah. versus a pheasant is saying, "Geez, what the hell is he trying to do? Get away from me!" You know, I better stop that. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah. deer hunting, in its own way, um, just the solitude of it, and uh, the quiet—at least where I hunt, and we don't see a lot of people, we don't see that many deer. Um, it's it's cool, and that that this is not to discount certainly the non-consumptive type of outdoor recreation like hiking, sure. um, or certainly paddling in the Boundary Waters, um, which is terrific. Uh, it does take interestingly for me anyway. It takes two three days before you sort of settle out of your former life in the yeah. Boundary Waters, yeah. um, and you just quiet down a little bit, and you say, um, you know, uh, I'm at a different pace now. It's okay. Um, I guess finally, do you, you know, where, where you're at now looking around in, in, in your career in the outdoors, um, you think Sigurd was right about this? I, I think I know the answer, but that the, the spirituality of these outdoors experiences, yeah, um, more so does it, does yeah. it do something to you personally, spiritually oh, being, yeah. being outside and. More so than ever because we're, I think we're more occupied, obviously, obviously than ever. Your your cell phone would be the the connector that drives you crazy, you know. And it, it used to be in his relatively simple time. It was just um, 
less traffic than it is today and fewer people and no electronics and so forth. So it was a simpler time, but an obvious time. He didn't, of course, write it. It wasn't the first to write it and, yep. and notice it. You know, the, the some of the greatest writing in that, um, I think the year was 1653 when, um, might have been 1625, when the, the complete angler, Isaac Walton, was, wrote that. I mean, he... He was all over it, you know, and then, of course, Walden and others and John Muir as well. Um, and there are others, including um, some of Sig's contemporaries up in Ely at the time, you know, and they were very political. Um, he didn't necessarily write that so much, but, you know, to get that airplane ban effective basically in 50 or 51 over the Boundary Waters, that was a huge deal. I mean, yeah. there are huge resorts in the Boundary Waters where float planes fly in and bring you guys from Chicago or wherever, the Twin Cities. And now we're going to, you know, to conceive that, no, no, we got to stop that. We got to ban those airplanes. Ultimately, we're going to buy out those resorts, pull them out of there. Uh, couldn't know. be done today. Yeah, no, I, no it couldn't. Way. No way. Well, no way. yeah, look what's happening up there now. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really, really appreciate you being here and having yeah, this conversation. Happy to do it. I'm glad you got this thing uh, going. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And yeah. try to connect these things. I hope your, you know, I hope your grandpa would be proud that you're you're still a churchgoer. Yeah, Methodist, still Methodist. No, Lutheran. Lutheran now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we a concession in marriage. There's a compromise. My yeah. wife was Catholic. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So met in the middle. Yeah, met in the middle. So good. All right. Well, thanks a million. Okay. You're welcome.